Blog Talk Radio. And we are live. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. All righty, this is Leslie Gist. I have my partner on the line with me, Miss Nellie Johnson, and, of course, the executive producer of the show, Mrs. Grandma Ellen out of uh, East New York, Brooklyn, right? Um, right. And it's their station identification is? www.tandlradio.com and it's 90.5 FM in East New York. All right. And, of course, you can find me on Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T, on Facebook and on iTunes, Black History University, and on Blog Talk Radio, The Gist of Freedom. Now, of course, we're going to talk about the election. Everybody is numb. Um, I have a friend out of New York City who takes the subway. He says the subway is so quiet. It's like people are like zombies. Um, the, the nation is stunned. There's protests erupting everywhere throughout America. Um, in fact, there's a picture on my Facebook page of Trump Tower, and it looks like a police station. There's armed men, heavy rifles. Um, there's a no-fly zone. I hear noise again. Can we mute our phones if we have background noise? And there's a no-fly zone over the Trump Tower. If this is what America's future looks like, a police state, um, you know, our president, Barack Obama, and his family were truly beloved throughout the world. I mean, he didn't have to worry worry to the extent that I think um, uh, Donald Trump will have to worry. I, not only uh, was the mood much um, lighter with Barack Obama. But we're we're all going to feel the repercussions of having a president who is very unpopular and disliked around the world. He has created so many enemies in this 18-month-long campaign. It was the most racist, divisive campaign in the history of the United States. Um, He has insulted people on every level. True. And so by doing whatever he could do to win, he didn't care who he offended, and Arabs, Mexicans, um, women, just anybody. And, you know, there is karma for that, no doubt about it. That's just how life is. So for people to think that it's business as usual, I'm afraid, and I want to be optimistic, but I don't think, it's going to go over as easy, and it has been eruptions, protests, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the projection, not even at the announcement. People didn't even wait for the announcement, the official announcement. These protests begin just at the projection that he may win. Um, of course, mainstream mm-hmm. media is playing it down, and, and they should because no one wants to see America um, look the way the way it's looking now. But, um, you know, there's a price that we all pay when um, we, as Benjamin Franklin says, when we are willing to barter our freedom for a little bit of security, he says you're not worthy of either one. Mm-hmm. So, so if, you have, if you're sitting back and you think, well, I, I just – hit my vote, my vote counted, I went out and voted, and that's all I have to do, and you're not going to be vigilant, 
as Miss Nellie said, and be a, a participant in elections, local elections. Um, or be a participant at your workplace, with your unions. If you're not going to really be vocal and mobilize, then you're going to suffer the consequences. People who you used to rely on to stand up for you, they're not going to be there for you. Um, Throughout history, many people have stayed and fought in America, but we also have had times when African Americans have left this country um, in droves, and they returned after all the stuff hit the the, um, fan, meaning the Civil War. Black people left right prior to the Civil War, and they came back after the deadliest war took place on this soil, that is the Civil War, when white people lost more lives um, in the Civil War, more, more than all the wars combined were lost during the Civil War over a moral issue called slavery. Now, half the country didn't have to do that. Half the country had abolished slavery the way they, the Constitution, the way they had uh, agreed to doing it gradually, but the South refused to abolish slavery. Lincoln even waited to the last second. And when they were forced to do it by um, violence, they suffered the most casualties in the history of the United States to this day. So, um, unfortunately, it looks like that is the route that America may take. And it's not just African-American people. Like I said, this war that is being waged in order to win this presidency was not waged against just African-Americans. This president has picked a fight with everybody. But from history, we can say that the African Americans know how to jump ship. They know when the gig is up. Um, We have, uh, what's his name? Frederick Douglass took off, thought about leaving, going to Haiti. But then when the war broke out, he stayed and his son stayed. Um, Many of the fugitives had. Uh, lived it, moved to Canada. So I don't think it's too much of a um, big deal for African Americans. We have been known when, um, not just when the Civil War broke out, but also when the KKK came to the South and uh, ran roughshod in, in our towns and neighborhoods in the South, we moved to the North. And when the North got really bad, the cities got bad, we moved to the suburbs. So Mm -hmm. I just think that blacks are now going to move from the suburbs to out of the country. Many have already left um, throughout the last, through the 60s, and found places. So I say to those who are considering leaving, if you move from the city to the suburbs, it's not a big difference to move from the United States to somewhere else because this this world is so much smaller with the use of electronics and the Internet and with the transportation. It's nothing compared to what our forefathers had to deal with prior um, to the Civil War breakout. So that's what I have to say as far as history. Um, uh, one more thing about uh, Trump. I posted something on the 9th the day after the election, saying that we need to be more concerned with his Russian ties. I'll read what the article says. Russian official, Moscow had contact with Trump team during the campaign. Trump spokeswoman Hope Hicks told the Post in an email that the campaign had no contact with Russian officials. The Russian deputy foreign minister said Thursday that representatives of the Russian government were in contact with members of the Trump campaign during the presidential election. During the campaign, two high-level members of the Trump campaign, um, his chair, Paul Manafort, and foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, resigned after after their business ties to Russia um, came to light. And this is all from Mm -hmm. the article. You could Google Google um, what I just said, some keywords, um, talkingpointmemo.com is where I got this story from. So 
you can put these these uh, two things together. Uh, now I'm going to move on uh, to what was what affected me most the the moment I discovered that this might be a reality is summed up by what Van Jones said on CNN a few hours after the um, the announcement was made. And he said this, how do I explain this to my children? It's hard to be a parent tonight for a lot of us. You tell your kids don't be a bully. You tell your kids don't be a bigot. You tell your kids do your homework and be prepared, he said. And then you have this outcome. You have, and I'm, uh, end quote, you have a president who justified everything he said to his child, everything that mm-hmm. he said to our children. Don't be a bully. Mm-hmm. Don't plagiarize. That's true. And now you have the president of the United States. With, the biggest bully in town. Who did everything, and it's an open book. America embraced all of those negative attributes. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not like he hid them. So you got to give him credit. He, he hid them, but he once they came out, you know, he didn't run too much. You know, he denied it, but his followers. He, he was the one that started pulling it out of people. He gave people the, 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 the courage to say out loud what they've been thinking. And now they have the courage to do stuff to people that they were thinking of doing, but they didn't have um, the backing. But now that they have the backing of the new president-elect, they think, they can go around bullying people and pushing people and smashing off people's headscarves and um, um, beating up people and stuff. There's been a lot of craziness going on. We are looking... And, and the news media is looking at what's going on in the streets with the protests, which are basically peaceful. But there is stuff going on out there that is really violent mm-hmm. from yeah. the other side. Yeah. And they're not making a big deal out of it, and they should be making a big deal out of it. It's a very tense time, and I feel as though that the John Browns of, the, of today are going to rise up. And they're going to rise up because already um, Trump has – uh, backed away from some of his campaign promises uh-huh. so, that he was going to build this wall. His people have already said that's not really important. On yeah, Newt Gingrich says it's not it's not uh, primary on the agenda, and yeah. it might not even happen. And I think those people who and voted he, the first time, those people who voted, those people he drug out of the some underneath their rocks and out of the trail of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are going to be so incensed that they've been tricked into believing in a system that they've never believed in anyway. And now they have been played and bamboozled by this man. You know, he's making he's making um, enemies out of some of the people I call the Timmy McVeigh. You know, he's yes. Timmy McVeigh to vote, and now he's not going to... Um, those promises. Honor those yep. promises. You know, you don't mess with that them. That he made to them. And they will probably do something really, really stupid. Yes. So that is his problem. As I said, with the Civil War, we recognized it really wasn't an uh, African-American problem. It was a problem between two sides fighting over money. And we really don't buy into that system. So when they get going, and then you got the other factors involved. African Americans do as you always do. Mind your business. So keep your head down. Keep, it moving. keep your head down. Watch, yeah. watch unfold. So let's go to the area that I'm most like to talk about is in history, the Fugitive Slave Law. This moment in time reminds me of when the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 happened. That was when the law was changed um, in exchange for the 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 um, for California to be admitted into the union as a free state. In 1849, the gold rush was struck, and the country had to decide if we we're going to let the country, let California come in as a slave state or a free state. You mm-hmm. had you had two main players. 
out of Kentucky, and that was um, the great compromiser known as Henry Clay and his mm-hmm. radical abolitionist cousin, Cassius Marcellus Clay, whom uh, Muhammad Ali is named after. Well, in all his wisdom, he felt that slaves, Henry Clay, not his cousin, not Cassius, Henry Clay thought in all his wisdom that we, African Americans, were more valuable than gold. So he let mm-hmm. gold go to the free state in exchange for this law to say that now they would have the right to cross the Mason-Dixon line and drag anybody they deemed to be a slave. Prior to the 1850 law, the first thing that came was the 1700 that the slave would have to have a warrant for each warrant and proof to a judge that they had just caused the slave to run away. Now they no longer have to have it, i.e. it's like stop and frisk and like mm-hmm. you no longer have to do anything. You are just automatically accused of being a suspect. Just because. And it's coming back at a time now that you look back at it, when we have a fascist president rising to power, the fugitive slave law um, and the stop and frisk and and stand your ground all came out of a group of um, of businessmen uh, supporting Mm -hmm. this bill. So what's happening is corporations are influencing our laws and our policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dignity is paying for these politicians. Trump. Oh, that—that's the new thing. Also, I heard today that um, the new president-elect is having businessmen, as they say, corporation uh, people who own corporations, and lobbyists as part of his transition team. This is the man that's going to drain the swamp. Right. And so, stop coercion. And I'm going to. He's starting with it. Before I move on to the fugitive slave bill, and we're going to play an excerpt from um, Black Abolitionists, a book written in the '60s by Benjamin mm-hmm. Pearl. Mm-hmm. Chapter Chapter Nine, and it talks about what African Americans did as a result of the fugitive slave law of 1850 or the fugitive slave bill. Now, what I was about to say about Trump is that we're going to move on. Trump mm-hmm. did not release his tax forms. As a teenager and young um, working uh, woman in my early 20s, I was bonded three different times, meaning, I mean, I, I had worked at the bank. I mean, it just mm-hmm. I didn't have a high-level position. I had to get bonded. Mm-hmm. And that was because they did not trust me with money. Mm-hmm. So if I was in debt, because if I'm in debt, I might steal from the bank. Mm-hmm. How, how is it that we can have a president that we're not checking? If you go to lease an apartment or buy or, or rent an apartment or a condo, you can't just go in there without a credit check. They're going to check because they want to make sure that you're good to go. We feel mm-hmm. we, we, we let a president of the United States somebody get elected to be our president of the United States, and now we're talking about he may be involved with Russia. And we don't know if he owes Russia money or if Russia is paying him off. I mean, I feel like we're the most ignorant country on, on this planet right now. I mean, to let right these, these simple things go in the name of being a racist, you have let your guard down to be um, a victim of a traitor. Of, of and the thing is, we don't know if he's, they say he, he's not fit to serve, but we don't know if he's physically able to serve because he never released his medical, medical freedom. Because he says some racist things and you want to buy into it. You know, you don't know what you have in this man. And if he turns yeah. out to be a great president, they get what they deserve, all the racists. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter was supposed to be from the South, from Georgia, and he was supposed to be a racist, and he flipped the switch on them, and they were mad at him. They're still mad at him. They think, look at him. So we'll see how things uh, turn out. Um, any other points you want to raise before I hit this button? No, 
Okay. I'm good. All right, so I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to hit the button, and we're going to listen to Benjamin Quirrell. All right, in Chicago, response to the new fugitive slave law was swift and dramatic. To protect its members from being born back to bondage, the group created a vigilance committee consisting of a black police force of seven divisions. Each division had six persons who were to patrol the city each night to watch for slave catchers. On September 30, 1850, more than 300 black Chicagoans gathered at Quinn Chapel, the first black church in Chicago located on the east side of Wells Street near Washington Street, to protest the Fugitive Slave Act. At the time, the city's population was about 23,000 people with only 378 blacks. The Liberty Association's greatest moment came when members stormed the office of the Justice of the Peace and freed several fugitive slaves who were awaiting transport to the South. Thousands of Chicagoans gathered to watch and cheer the event, a noble and unheralded milestone in Chicago's history. John Jones, a free black abolitionist and a leading figure of Chicago's black community, rose to address the crowd. He read a series of resolutions conceived by himself and fellow black abolitionist Henry O. Wagoner and William Johnson. Jones spoke out at the gathering. Who, sorry, we who have tasted freedom are ready to exclaim with Patrick Henry, give us liberty or give us death. And in the language of George Washington, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. We will stand by our liberty at the expense of our lives and will not consent to be, ta- to be taken into slavery or permit our brethren to be taken. To protect its members from being born. Okay, I read that part. Um, this committee's resolution re- revealed how Chicago's black abolitionists viewed themselves and their fellow African Americans as a free people, ears to the rights won by the American Revolution, ready to sacrifice their lives if necessary to maintain that freedom. This view of African African Americans as rightful citizens of the Republic was central to the abolitionist movement of the mid-19th century and key to understand the actions of those in Chicago and elsewhere who worked to end slavery. So with that being said, again, you can um, read the whole entire passage on my Facebook. That's L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T. And you can also visit www.blackhistoryuniversity.com on iTunes and the Gist of Freedom on Block Talk Radio. So please um, make comments, whatever you need to do, and we're here for you. And then after this um, uh, clip, we may come back. Thank you so much. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 6, Side 1. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are... Be- black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 6, Side 1. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black okay. and white, who with I faith and focus we have are reserved. A little problem. We're just going to start all over. Because I... I really don't want to hear that version, but we'll wait. Until that's queued up, I'll talk about celebrating invisible cryptologists. As you can see, I really haven't studied his his post as much, but they have a bunch of black women who are working for the Arlington Hall Station for the National Security Agency in D.C., Maryland area back in the 1940s. It's a beautiful picture of them, and they had to um, work with the Morse code communication. There were secret 
operators. So you can also learn about the black cryptos. All right, so I think we are ready now. Charlotte Fortin. It was the first time this October 5th, 1850, at 12 noon, that New York Negroes had ever held a meeting in the public park. But then there had never been so large a black audience or so deeply moving an occasion. 5,000 people had gathered to welcome home a fellow New Yorker who had been gone hardly a week. Moreover, he was dressed as a laborer and hence could hardly have been a community leader or member of the black elite. But when the 30-year-old porter stood up after being introduced by the presiding officer, the audience cheered with deafening effect, drowning out the sobbing and the crying, some of which came from the guest of honor himself. For this man was a fugitive slave, James Hamlet, who had been seized on the streets of New York nine days earlier. Hamlet had offered as his defense the fact that he was a free man, having entitled himself to his freedom. But his line of reasoning lacked admissible legal precedent. In fact, the testimony of an alleged fugitive was invalid by law. Hence, Hamlet had been arrested and returned to his Baltimore mistress. A few days later, New York Negroes held a mass meeting at Mother Zion Church, with many whites present, for the purpose of raising enough money to buy Hamlet. Amid great enthusiasm, the purchase price of $800 was raised. One Negro, Isaac Hollenbeck, starting things off with a donation of $100. Now Hamlet was home again, no longer melancholy, but restored to his family, friends, and job. Standing before the gathering in the park, Hamlet waved his dampened handkerchief while a bevy of women gathered around his wife and child. Such kissing and crying never were seen, wrote a contemporary. When things quieted down, there were speeches by William P. Powell, Charles B. Ray, John Peter Thompson, and Robert Hamilton. But there was none from Hamlet, his heart too full. He is a free man. That is a speech itself, explained Hamilton. The exercises closed with the singing of a hymn, and then Hamlet was hoisted in the air and borne on shoulders through the park and to his home. The Hamlet case was hardly a victory over slavery. For, as William P. Powell had remarked, it was brought about not by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation, but by the irresistible genius of the almighty dollar. What gave the Hamlet case its dramatic impact was its timing. It took place a week after President Fillmore had signed into law a measure that shook the North, its subject, the fugitive slave. One of five measures known collectively as the Compromise of 1850 the fugitive slave law provoked an unprecedented hue and cry. The law denied both the testimony of the alleged runaway and his right to a trial by jury, and it assumed his guilt rather than his innocence. Such a measure could have been swallowed by Congress only because it was part of a package, for it violated the basic concepts of American law and the procedural guarantees of the Constitution. Hence, it recharged the emotional slavery debate, greatly widening the breach between the sections. In the North, the measure was condemned and defied, and in the South, this condemnation and defiance was regarded as an act of bad faith. The fugitive slave law gave to the abolitionists a weapon which they would exploit to the hilt. In this chorus of condemnation, no voices were louder than those of the Negro. But long before the abolitionist attack could reach its full proportions, many runaway slaves living in the North had decided to take to the road again, this time to Canada. The law was ex post facto, reaching back to fugitives who had almost forgotten that they had not always been free. Former runaways feared that the law might be enforced, a view sustained in some legal quarters that were friendly to the slave. Upon passage of the law, George T. Downing and William P. Powell had written William J., asking his advice on its constitutionality and binding force. The former judge had little for their comfort. You ask me how you shall secure yourselves from the kidnapper. God only knows. J. urged the Negroes not to turn to violence, to leave the pistol and the boy knife to southern ruffians and their northern mercenaries. 
A group of New York Negroes sought the advice of another friendly figure. Congressman Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania as to the constitutionality of the new law. Stevens replied that he had little hope that the measure would not be upheld by the federal courts. Hence, he could advise nothing better than the subjects of it put themselves beyond its reach. Many fugitive slaves, apprehensive of their freedom in the land of the fugitive slave law, made ready to take their departure. The black exodus touched every northern city with more than a handful of Negroes. This embraced even Boston, with its tradition of challenging unpopular laws and defying the official charged with enforcing them. Forty former slaves bade farewell to Boston within sixty hours after the Fugitive Slave Bill became law. The city's colored churches were particularly hard hit. The African Methodist Church lost eighty-five members, and the much smaller Zion Methodist Church lost 10. The First Baptist Church lost 40 of its 125 enrollees. The congregation of the Twelfth Baptist Church quickly dwindled from 141 to 81, and two of its deacons were retained only because the members had raised $1,300 to buy their freedom. Some of these departees to Canada were relatives of runaways, and a few might have been free-born Negroes who felt jeopardized. But in Boston, as elsewhere, the fugitive slave law revealed that the number of runaways was greater than most people would have thought. For members taking flight, the churches in upstate New York could match those in Boston. The Baptist Colored Church of Buffalo lost 130 members after the pastor told the congregation that he found gospel precedent for running away, but none that warranted fighting. At the Colored Baptist Church of Rochester, the Kentucky-born pastor was the first to quit the city, and he was soon followed by 112 members of his flock, leaving two behind. At Pittsburgh, a group of 200 Negroes left for Canada a few days before the signing of the Fugitive Slave Law. They carried firearms, having vowed that they would die before being taken back into slavery. Pittsburgh lost an additional 800 Negroes, over half of whom were relatives of runaways. Another Pennsylvania city, Columbia, lost 487 of its 943 Negroes during the five-year span after the passage of the law. William Whipper assisted many of the Canada-bound emigrants, helping them to sell such possessions as they could not carry, particularly houses and real estate. At both Columbia and Pittsburgh, a runaway who had been taken into custody was purchased by Negroes, Whipper heading the effort of Columbia and John B. Vachon at Pittsburgh. To most Negroes, outright defiance was a more emotionally satisfying response to the fugitive slave law than flight outside the country or raising money to pay a master. Hence, Negroes throughout the North held anti-fugitive slave law meetings. On October 2, 1850, some 1,500 black New Yorkers jammed into the Zion Chapel for a protest meeting. The presiding officer, William P. Powell, set the tone in a series of opening questions. You are told to submit peacefully to the laws. Will you do so? No, no. You are told to kiss the manacles that bind you. Will you do so? No, no, no. Other speakers took up this refrain, which was reaffirmed by the formal resolutions utterly repudiating a law so repugnant to every principle of justice. Before the meeting adjourned, two petitions condemning the law were circulated, one to the state legislature and the other to Congress. A week later, the Negroes of Elmira vowed that they would defy the fugitive slave law at the sacrifice of their lives. Negroes elsewhere voiced similar sentiments. Ten days after the fugitive slave law went into operation, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes held a meeting at the public square. They condemned the Pennsylvania congressman who had supported the slave bill, which they declared to be a deadly blow at liberty. The most stirring remarks came from Martin R. Delaney, who said that he hoped that the ground would refuse his body if a slaveholder crossed his threshold and he did not lay him a lifeless corpse at his feet. An even more impassioned statement came from Robert Purvis, presiding at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society at Westchester on October 17, 1850. 
his eyes flashing, Purvis declared that should any wretch enter my dwelling, any pale-faced specter among ye, to execute this law on me or mine, I'll seek his life, I'll shed his blood. Parker Pillsbury, deeply moved by the outburst, wrote that the fugitive slave law was revealed in all its horror when it could move a man like Purvis to such extremity. Negroes elsewhere shared the defiant mood of Delaney and Purvis. New York Negroes held a meeting which sanctioned forcible resistance to the fugitive slave law, the chairman appointing a committee to assist endangered runaways. Less than a week after the passage of the measure, a large and enthusiastic group of Negroes met at Quinn Chapel in Chicago and proceeded to organize the Liberty Association. Forty-two men, working in teams, were to patrol the city, spying for possible slave hunters. At Zanesville, Ohio, a group of Muskingum County Negroes met in November 1850 and formally declared that if they heard of anyone being arrested as a fugitive, they would leave our several employments to come to his assistance. Two months later, at a statewide meeting of colored citizens at Columbus, the fugitive slave law was denounced as an outrage upon humanity. Boston Negroes held a protest meeting of a resolute and enthusiastic character at the Belknap Street Church on October 4, 1850. Following a series of addresses of a most emphatic type, a resolution was adopted pledging its sponsors to resist unto death any attempt upon their liberties. But some of the fugitives who were present expressed the wish for a large-scale public expression of support. These former slaves were apprehensive, having witnessed the departure and anticipating the impending departure of others of their kind. Ten days later, such a reassurance meeting was held at Faneuil Hall, an appropriate site. The call to the meeting had been signed by Josiah Quincy, former mayor of Boston and 340 other white abolitionists. With hundreds milling outside the packed hall, the meeting allayed any fears as to the abolitionists' support in defying the law. On the platform, the presiding officer, Charles Francis Adams, was flanked by Richard Henry Dana, substituting for the ailing Josiah Quincy, Theodore Parker, Wendell Phillip, Frederick Douglass, Charles Lennox Raymond, and runaways William and Ellen Craft. After stating the purpose of the meeting, Adams called upon Douglass to state the conditions of the colored people under this new act of oppression. Arising amid an ovation, the much-sought-after orator and former slave did not mince words. Boston Negroes, he said, had vowed to die rather than return to bondage. We must be prepared, should this law be put into operation, to see the streets of Boston running with blood. As if to bear out his assertion, Douglas recited the stories of fugitives who had exhibited unusual daring and courage. Then he asked the audience whether it would permit slaveholders to seize a Negro in Boston. Faneuil Hall's rafters echoed to the cry of no. Douglas closed on a personal note, saying that a rumor had reached Rochester, where he lived, that a group of slave hunters were after him and would visit his home. He had resolved to meet them, and as his house was rather small and the party probably rather large, he went up to a trap door in the attic in order to receive them one at a time. This forceful address set the tone for the remaining speeches and actions. Two resolutions were adopted, one calling for the repeal of the fugitive slave law, and the other proclaiming that constitution or no constitution, we will not allow a fugitive slave to be taken from Massachusetts. A 50-member committee of vigilance was empowered to set up an office to give advice and assistance to fugitive slaves. I am happy to state, wrote Douglas the following morning, that the public meeting held here last night had done much toward quieting the colored people. As it turned out, this optimism was shattered by an occurrence the very next day. Two agents of Dr. Robert Collins of Macon, Georgia, owner of William and Ellen Craft, had arrived in Boston and obtained warrants for their arrest. Wrote Douglas in a hurried dispatch to his weekly, Mr. Kraft is armed and resolved to stand his ground, and in less than an hour blood may flow in the streets of Boston. No blood was shed, but not because Kraft was unarmed. The clergyman, Theodore Parker, had inspected his weapons, although confessing that it was rather a new business for him. 
but Parker's analysis bore a professional ring. His powder had a good kernel, and he kept it dry. His pistols were of excellent proof, the barrels true and clean. The trigger went easy. The caps would not hang fire at the snap. I tested his poniard. The blade had a good temper, stiff enough yet springy withal. The point was sharp. When Henry I. Bowditch offered to drive Kraft across town, the former slave agreed upon condition that Bowditch arm himself. The two drove in Bowditch's buggy, Kraft with a revolver in one hand and a pistol in the other. The two agents of Collins were told that they had better get out of Boston, and one of them heeded the advice. However, the Krafts decided that they too would leave. Upon the advice of well-wishers, they hastened out of the country, having received $250 from the Boston Vigilance Committee to pay their passage to England. But the attending excitement did not die down. The Crafts episode proved to be but one in a highly dramatic series involving the rendition of runaways. Defiance of the fugitive slave law became a new commandment to abolitionists throughout the North. The rescue of slaves who had been taken in custody did not begin in 1850, however. It was something that Negroes had been doing for nearly two decades. In the early summer of 1833, a group of Detroit Negroes rescued two slaves, wounding the sheriff in the process and leading the mayor to issue a call for federal troops. In the following spring, several Negroes in Philadelphia were sent to the penitentiary for an attempt to seize a slave from the police, the court having authorized his delivery to his master. Late in July 1836, Boston was the scene of a rescue which came to be known as the Abolition Riot. Two slaves, Eliza Small and Polly Ann Bates, were claimed as runaway slaves belonging to John B. Morris of Baltimore and brought to court. While the attorney for Morris was addressing the judge, someone in the spectator section shouted, Go! Go! Whereupon some colored people rushed to the bench and bore the prisoners down the courthouse steps and shoved them into a waiting carriage. A colored woman of great size, who scrubbed floors for a living, threw her arms around the neck of one officer, immobilizing him. Eliza and Polly were never recaptured, and their abettors went scot-free, although Sheriff C.P. Sumner, father of Charles Sumner, was criticized for permitting such a breach of the peace. In Chicago, in October 1846, while the case of two runaway slaves from Missouri was in progress in court, a crowd of Negroes and their white sympathizers gathered around the officers and carried the slaves away. At Pittsburgh, a year later, a group of Negroes seized a runaway from two Virginia constables who had placed him under arrest. Up to 1850, the rescuing of fugitive slaves had been a business conducted almost exclusively by Negroes. The fugitive slave law of that year brought an influx of new blood into the work. This the Negro abolitionists welcomed heartily, but they did not use it as an excuse to retire to the sidelines. The Shadrach rescue is a case in point. An employee at the Cornhill Coffee House in Boston, Fred Wilkins, or Shadrach as he was popularly known, was seized at noon on February 15, 1851, and rushed to the courthouse with his waiter's apron still on. The news spread as if with wings the Negro residential section being nearby. Five lawyers, including Robert Morris, a Negro, had just succeeded in obtaining a court delay to prepare for the defense when the rescue took place. A group of some 50 Negroes pressed into the courtroom, lifted Shadrach in the air, and bore him to the street. His clothes half torn off, Shadrach was placed in a carriage, and soon the rescued and the rescuers were moving away like a black squall. There was no pursuit, the seizure having been so sudden and unexpected. Taking refuge in Canada, Shadrach was beyond the reach of American law. But some of his rescuers did not escape legal action. On February 18, 1851, President Fillmore issued a special proclamation ordering that proceedings be commenced against the aiders or abettors in this flagitious offense. Robert Morris and Lewis Hayden were among those indicted for complicity in the rescue. Neither was ever sentenced. 
On June 16, 1851, the jury trying Hayden reported that it had been unable to reach a verdict. Five months later, the Morris case came to an end. The federal authorities had tried to charge him with treason, but the grand jury had him bound over for a misdemeanor. On November 11, 1851, the jury that heard the case, United States versus Robert Morris, returned a verdict of not guilty. Boston had two cases of runaways being sent back to slavery, but in each instance the fugitive slave law won a clouded victory at best. Early in April 1851, while the abolitionists were still in the pleasant afterglow of the Shadrach rescue, Thomas Sims, a fugitive from Georgia, was seized. Sims was rushed to the courthouse, a gloomy granite building that the federal authorities had to use as a jail, Massachusetts law preventing the use of state facilities for fugitive slave purposes. Legal efforts to free Sims were unsuccessful. A plot to effect his escape was equally abortive. Leonard A. Grimes visited Sims and told him that a mattress would be placed outside his window at a certain hour and that he was to jump and land on it and be spirited away. But before the scheme could be put into operation, the courthouse authorities put bars on every window. Taking additional precautions, especially to secure the doorways, they placed an iron chain around the building, already encircled by a hundred policemen. Shortly before sunrise on April 13th, Sims was marched to the Long Wharf to be shipped back to slavery. Despite the early hour, 100 abolitionists were present, marching solemnly behind a cordon of policemen three times their number. As Sims, tear-streaked but erect, marched up the gangplank, someone cried out, Sims, preach liberty to the slaves. The sorrowing abolitionists made their way back to the anti-slavery office, pausing on State Street at the spot where the black Crispus Attucks fell in the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770 an event signaling the Revolutionary War. Sims was gone, but he left behind more than the coat he wore on the day he was seized, as prized as it became among abolitionists. His seizure gave to the recently reorganized Vigilance Committee a reason for being, thus attracting new supporters and swelling its coffers. Many of its meetings were held at the home of Lewis Hayden, in 1851, the committee assisted 69 fugitives of record. It had on its payroll 49 Negroes who harbored slaves pending their final disposition. John S. Rock, then practicing medicine rather than law, was paid by the committee for his services to sick fugitives. Despite the efforts of Boston abolitionists, white and black, a runaway slave was taken from the city in the spring of 1854. This was the celebrated Anthony Burns, who had learned to read and write in slavery, having had a kindly disposed master. Late in May, 1854, Burns was arrested as a fugitive slave and put in irons. Two days later, an attempt was made to storm the courthouse and seize Burns, but the attack was repulsed, one of the deputies, however, being shot and killed. During the following week, while the city awaited the commissioner's decision, feeling ran high. Beg our colored friends to bear and forbear, wrote John Greenleaf Whittier. Oh, let them beware of violence. The black people thronged around the courthouse, showing their sympathy by watching around the clock. Burns needed sympathy, as United States Commissioner Edward G. Loring had returned a verdict in favor of his master. Richard Henry Dana and Leonard Grimes hastened to the courthouse to be with the prisoner and attempt to raise his spirits. Later that day, many shops were hung in black, and a huge coffin was strung over State Street. Our worst fears are realized, wrote 16-year-old Charlotte Fortin in her diary for June 2, 1854. A cloud seems hanging over me, over all our persecuted race, which nothing can dispel. One thing remained, to get Burns from the courthouse to the wharf to be put aboard a revenue cutter that was bound for Virginia. From the courthouse door, a loaded gun was mounted, and from the courthouse to the wharf, the streets were lined with police. In the center of the armed posse marched Burns. 
He had expected to have Dana and Grimes walking beside him, but the marshal of the posse had gone back on his word to permit such an arrangement. Fifty thousand spectators witnessed the procession as it made its way past buildings draped in black. One of these viewers was a good-looking young Negro girl whose teeth were clenched and whose eyes were tearful. Samuel Gridley Howe attempted to console her, saying that Burns would not be hurt. Hurt, she said, I cry for shame that he will not kill himself. Oh, why is he not man enough to kill himself? Charlotte Fortin expressed the belief that very few clergymen would speak out against the cruel outrage on humanity represented by the rendition of Burns. The fearless Theodore Parker could be numbered in that select company, preaching a sermon which asserted that in the wicked week of 1854, Massachusetts was one of the inferior counties of Virginia and Boston but a suburb of Alexandria. It is hardly surprising that when William J. Watkins had heard Parker six months earlier, he had come to the conclusion that no man preached more truth. The rendition of Anthony Burns left the abolitionists frustrated and angry, but its sequel was more to their liking. The revulsion of feeling throughout Massachusetts prompted the legislature to pass a more comprehensive personal liberty law in 1855, one which practically made the fugitive slave law a dead letter in the Bay State. Public opinion was changing, with abolitionists coming to be regarded less as traitors and more as patriots. Moreover, Burns remained a slave for less than a year. His new master, unlike his predecessor, was willing to set him at liberty for a price. With money raised in abolitionist circles, Leonard A. Grimes went to Baltimore to complete the transaction and accompanied Burns back to the free states and a joyous welcome. Shortly thereafter, he entered Oberlin, where he remained for two years before enrolling at the Fairmount Theological Seminary at Cincinnati. Except in the far west, the defiance of the fugitive slave law was widespread. The locale of slave rescues ranged from Massachusetts to the Middle Atlantic states and those bordering the Great Lakes and known collectively as the Old Northwest. Three representative examples of slave recaptures may be briefly noted, including the typical role played by black activists. In New York, the most celebrated instance of the law's defiance was the rescue of William Henry on October 1, 1851, at Syracuse. A muscular mulatto who went by the name Jerry, he was known to be a runaway, but his conduct had been above reproach, and his employer, C.P. Williston, had found no complaint with his work as a cooper. Seized and taken to the federal commissioner's office, Jerry was in the process of being indicted when he slipped his guard and dashed out of the building and down the street. But being manacled, he was caught by the police, and after a stiff fight, the battered and disheveled prisoner was returned to the commissioner's office. The news of the incident spread rapidly, and within a few hours the abolitionists had formulated a rescue plan. Shortly after eight o'clock that evening, a group of men dashed into the police office, overwhelmed the guards by sheer numbers, battered down the door to the room Jerry was in, and took him. The first persons reaching him were two Negroes, Peter Hollenbeck and William Gray, the latter a runaway. Jerry was first taken to the home of a colored man where his shackles were removed. Then, to avoid suspicion, he was removed to the home of a white friend. Here he remained in hiding for five days before beginning his journey to Kingston, Ontario. Someone had to face the music and the federal government proceeded to indict 18 of the rescuers. Samuel Ringgold Ward, who claimed to have assisted in filing off Jerry's chains, hastened to Montreal. From this retreat, he wrote to George Whipple of the American Missionary Association, offering his services in the Canadian field. Another equally well-known black abolitionist, Germain W. Loguen, also made his way to Her Majesty's dominions. Loguen took the step in response to his wife's urgings. Two months later, on December 2nd, 1851, he wrote to Governor Hunt requesting protection should he return to Syracuse. Along with Loguen, four other Negroes were indicted, Prince Jackson, William Thompson, Harrison Allen, and Enoch Reed. 
Only three of the 18 rescuers were put on trial, and only one of these, Enoch Reed, was found guilty. He died pending an appeal, which he would have undoubtedly won. The Jerry rescue, in common with others of its kind, had great significance to abolitionists. They did not propose to let it die. Annually, until the Civil War, the reformers in western New York commemorated October 1st as Jerry Rescue Day. At the first anniversary, typical of those which followed, some 2,500 abolitionists came together, including William H. Topp, Frederick Douglass, William G. Allen, and the short-time emigrant Germain W. Loguen. White participants included Daniel Drayton of the Pearl, Samuel J. May, William Lloyd Garrison, and suffragists Lucretia Mott and young Lucy Stone. The speeches that lacked eloquence were not wanting in earnestness. Perhaps the palm went to a practiced scene-stealer. Frederick Douglass gave us some of the thunder of the gods, wrote William G. Allen. Some say that his was the speech of the morning, but I must confess that my heart palpitated toward Lucy, added that ever-gallant youthful professor of Belle Lettre. The attempted rendition of Jerry took place less than a month before the far more upsetting and highly publicized Christiana riot, the first defiance of the fugitive slave law resulting in bloodshed. To Christiana, a town in southern Pennsylvania, came Edward Gorsuch on September 11, 1851, from bordering Maryland in search of his four escaped slaves. Gorsuch and his party of six went to the home of William Parker, whom he suspected of harboring one or more of the fugitives. Himself a runaway from Maryland, Parker was in no mood to release an alleged slave, a feeling shared by the other Negroes in the town. Still vivid in their memory was the midnight seizure of a Negro six months previously, his abductors, a slave-hunting band known as the Gag Gang, having produced no warrant. When Gorsuch demanded that Parker permit him to enter the house, the latter's wife, Eliza Ann, herself a former runaway, blew a large dinner horn, a signal which summoned some two dozen Negroes to the scene. Soon an exchange of shots took place resulting in the death of Gorsuch and the wounding of his son. Thereupon, the outnumbered besiegers, already in no mood to press matters, withdrew. Forty-five Marines and a civil posse of fifty men were dispatched to restore order. The acting Secretary of State, W.S. Derrick, assured the Governor of Maryland that the President deplored this violation of the rights of the citizens of his state and that the federal government would exercise all its powers in bringing the offenders to book. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now.
Yes. 